there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're wondering about the difference between the editorial versus the reporting side of print journalism, or if you're curious about how to leverage your reporting chops to move into another profession entirely, then you're definitely going to want to stay tuned because my next guest is among the most talented journalists of his generation, who is today investing in innovative media and technology companies in emerging markets around the world. But before I introduce you to Marcus Broccoli, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you've been enjoying Time for Coffee, and I hope you have, I would greatly appreciate it if you would give us a review and a handful of stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our mission is to help young people turn their degrees into careers they love, and we need your help to get the word out that the Time for Coffee podcast exists. And if you haven't already signed up to get the Java Junkies Journal, that's our weekly newsletter giving you an overview of the new episode we're going to be dropping that week, just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org and sign up. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is the gifted journalist and entrepreneur, Marcus Broccoli who is today the managing partner and co-founder of North Base Media, a venture capital firm that invests in highly innovative media and technology companies in key growth markets around the world. Before co-founding North Base, Marcus was a vice president of the Washington Post Company, an executive editor of the Washington Post, overseeing its news and content operations, including new media, video, and digital innovation. Before joining The Post, Marcus was the Wall Street Journal's top editor. He also was responsible for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the stock market index then operated by the journal, and MarketWatch, the financial website. Prior to stepping into management at the journal, Marcus had spent over two decades as a correspondent and bureau chief working for the Wall Street Journal in Asia and Europe. Marcus, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on green tea and ready to go? I am indeed. Yes, fully ready to go. Awesome. I was hoping we could begin our conversation today, Marcus, with where you are right now at base camp or maybe I should say at the summit, as the managing partner and co-founder of North Base Media, which describes itself this way on your website, a venture capital firm that invests in highly innovative media and technology companies in key growth markets around the world. Can you explain to our listeners what the thesis is of North Base Media and how, in fact, you pick the companies that you're going to invest in? Sure. Delighted to. First of all, North Base is actually, as you may know, the base camp for Mount Everest on the Tibet side, from which few people actually ascend Mount Everest, I should say. But it's a place I visited once, spectacular views of the north side of Mount Everest. And when I was setting up this company with a colleague, we were looking for something that sort of reflected our ambitions to scale great heights. And that was what we came up with. So yes, you're right about the base camp. So North Base Media 
our thesis is pretty simple. It is that in a lot of the world, still more than half the world, people are just getting access to the internet and to smartphones, to the internet over mobile phones. In fact, today, something like two-thirds of the people in the world still don't have reliable internet access on their phones. But that's going to change. And in a lot of the markets where it's changing fastest, large populations of people have never before had any control over their media destiny. So when they get a phone that has some access to the internet, it's the first time they have an opportunity or an ability to choose what media content they want to consume. My partner in North Face Media is a guy named Sasha Vucinic, wonderful guy, Yugoslavian by birth, grew up in what is today Serbia, started a radio station there called B92 in the early 90s, which was the opposition radio station then in the dictatorship run by Slobodan Milosevic. And Sasha had to leave his country in 94 during the wars, the Balkan Wars, because of his political misalignment with the government. And he created a fund that supported independent media across post-communist Eastern and Central Europe. And he and I got to know each other, and we both had sort of the same epiphany, which was as this digital technology was spreading, there would be enormous opportunities to help people start media companies in places with large populations. So the contrast between that and where I came from is enormous because I come from working for big media companies in the West, in saturated markets where the incumbent players are being disrupted by digital technology, but where they have enormous brand power and enormous audience power. In contrast, if you start or work with a media company in a place like India, for most of the people who are looking at that media company, it's the first time they've chosen a media brand of their own. They're not reading local papers in a lot of these countries. They weren't. The population of people who read print newspapers, 10% in a country like India, out of a country of 1.3 billion people. So if you can find really smart entrepreneurs who are building out new media brands to serve those emerging audiences, you can accomplish all kinds of things, create all kinds of growth. So are you, in addition to investing in these companies, giving them support, guidance, mentorship, so that the kind of media companies that they become are grounded in sort of best practices? Very much. And that's, I think, the attraction of having us involved. So a lot of people who are young entrepreneurs, young women and men in countries like China, India, Mexico, Brazil, the first time that they start thinking about building a media company, they know what they want to do from a technology point of view, from an audience point of view, from a content point of view. But there's a whole lot of questions about how do you build audience? What's the smartest tool to use for connecting readers to video content? What platforms work? And we bring what we hope is a high level of expertise from having worked with other similar companies around the world to those entrepreneurs to sort of turbocharge their operation and give them a leg up as they're building out their companies. Great. It's entirely possible that the website is not updated. But according to your website, you've invested in about a dozen media companies, media technology companies around the world. Some are in countries that you have already mentioned that are democracies. Others are places and parts of the world where the media is not encouraged, let alone free to report the truth. If you were a cub reporter today, Marcus, where in the world do you think you would go to get the best experience really learning how to produce high quality content in this wild west of cyberspace? One of the beauties of the digital world is it's vast and flat, meaning that in the old days, 
when we worked for big media companies in the U.S., we had all kinds of technological and capital advantages over media companies in emerging markets. And, you know, if you showed up in India, as I used to do in the 90s, as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, you were regarded as something of a, I guess, if I were cruel to myself, a journalistic imperialist. You had all these resources and all this power and senior officials of the government would talk to you and you had access and you produced content at the highest quality. And, and we were sort of media companies of the West were sort of the center of the journalism world. The great thing about digital technology is it has completely democratized access to the tools and to the design of media for everybody. So if you're starting a media company in Bangalore or you're starting a media company in Mexico City, you have virtually the same capacity as somebody who's starting a media company in San Francisco or New York. And by the way, your costs are going to be dramatically lower because you can hire people who are coders or developers, designers, journalists at a much lower cost than people in those big markets. So there's nothing that will keep any media company in the world from being successful except regulations and governments and from time to time, large competitors who may be well endowed. But I think when we look at the markets that we're in, you know, you ask, where would I go if I were a young journalist? I would go anywhere I thought I wanted to be involved in that conversation. So Mexico City is a fantastic, vibrant, lively, interesting market right now. Obviously, it's a Spanish language market. If you wanted to go work in Mexico City, you probably should speak Spanish and maybe even think about whether or not an American perspective, if that's what you are, is necessary. But you could go and work in a job in a media company in Mexico, you could work in a company in Southeast Asia and in Indonesia. We're investors in a company in Taiwan, a digital news company called The News Lens. And every year they have one or two interns come through from the US, people who speak Chinese and want to work at a really innovative digital media company in Taiwan, in a Chinese speaking market. So I think the world is pretty open right now. If you were young and you have the ambition to go abroad, it's worth exploring those possibilities. Absolutely. Marcus, I'd like to flash back a bit to when you were still a shoe leather journalist working at the Washington Post. I guess then you were in more of an editorial position. And before that as the top editor at the Wall Street Journal. What was involved in those jobs versus when you were a reporter out in the field? Can you kind of paint a picture for our young listeners that is more colorful maybe than what they would be reading about in a book about an executive editor? What were you doing on a day-to-day basis? When you're the top editor of a big newspaper, you probably spend a third of your time on personnel and hiring decisions. And unfortunately, hiring also means firing a lot of the time. You probably spend a third of your time dealing with sort of strategic and budget questions. And you probably spend a third of your time doing journalism. And when you get there and you realize that you're only spending a third of your time doing the thing that you think you went into the profession for, it's a little disheartening. And you get caught up in the bureaucracy. It's not that you aren't motivated to go in and fight for your budget or hire the most talented person you can hire. But you also realize that the whole apparatus requires somebody to take care of all those other things. And it falls to the person who's responsible for the newsroom to engage on those other areas. If you're working at a big newspaper, a part of what you're doing on the journalism side is you're defending the journalism against your external critics. 
And your external critics range from people who just don't like the way you're writing about something, your reporters are, are describing events, to companies and governments who think that you've got things wrong and who apply all the pressure and all the weight and all the resources they have to try to get you to change your mind, to actual national security issues where you get phone calls from the senior most people in the U.S. government asking you not to publish something because they're concerned if you publish it, you will imperil some national security issue. And those things are actually kind of exhilarating. And the first time you get a phone call, and somebody says, please hold for the National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, and the White House Counsel, you sort of pause and, and wonder whether or not, as a news organization, you're doing the right thing. Although very quickly becomes clear that all institutions are basically run by people, and all people basically are doing the same thing, which is looking after their narrow interests. And you have to balance their narrow interests against the newspaper or the newsroom's interests, and against the national interest, which is a lot of times the national security issues, which you're having to judge. I think the part of being a top editor that is most alien to most journalists is the sort of the bureaucracy part. You are part of a business. There's an advertising sales force, a publishing unit that worries about how many subscribers you've got. You have to figure out what is your marketing strategy? How does the newsroom position itself versus other media companies? Those are interesting conversations, but they're not at all the kind of work that years working as a reporter in Asia or Europe or the U.S. prepares you for. It's just a completely different kind of work. But it's not work that you're any less passionate about because at the end of the day, defining what you are, defining what kind of a business you're going to be determines what kind of journalism you're going to be able to produce. And so you get engaged quickly. Absolutely. Marcus, from the various vantage points that you had now, including the one that you have today at North Base Media, what do you think it takes and by that, I mean the various qualities and talents and skills to be a great reporter. What can young people who are listening to this show right now be studying today if they're still in school or doing right now in terms of extracurriculars to enhance the prospects that they will land a good reporting job out of school? So let me say there are several things that I think are critical elements to success in journalism. The first, most elemental, is curiosity. You really have to be interested in the world and the people in the world and how the world works and how the people who live in the world live. You have to be interested in everybody and you have to be open-minded. You have to consider the possibility that things you thought you understood, you maybe didn't understand correctly. A streak of insecurity is a good thing in a journalist. Obviously, you could overdo it, but I'd much rather have somebody who's insecure than oversecure in journalism. I want a reporter who will file a story and five minutes later start writing about whether or not they describe something accurately. Somebody who will go back and revisit their work and consider the possibility they got something wrong. Humility is a critical, crucial aspect of success in journalism. Believing that you might not know everything. Don't make assumptions. Don't assume that what you think you know is what is. Because so often the way the world changes, the way things evolve, the understanding that you bring to something turns out to be mistaken. And realizing that you're mistaken will lead you to better stories because you'll be the first to discover that the understanding you have, which is often the understanding of many other people, was mistaken. In terms of how you prepare yourself, read, read, read. 
live life large, go out into the world, spend time with people, build connections, keep track of people, and always be reading. Be reading on any and every subject. Don't specialize in only one narrow thing. Read widely. Have broad interests. Be as knowledgeable as you can be about science. I remember reading once, there was a great novelist, and actually nonfiction writer too, James Michener, used to write these epic books about the United States. And James Michener once was interviewed somewhere, I forgot where I saw him interviewed. He talked about the importance of knowing the difference in the types of trees he was describing in a scene in one of his books. Is this tree a ponderosa pine or is it a spruce? Knowing the difference between different kinds of rocks. Is this sandstone or is this a schist? Because getting those things right and understanding those things will convey to people that you are writing or, or speaking with authority on the subjects you're describing to them. So go deep, read a lot, be knowledgeable. Love that. Marcus, I know when you were an undergrad at Columbia University, you and I were chatting just before this interview started, you just barely had enough credits to graduate with your minor, is that right, in political science? Yes. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I would go so far as say the degree was not something I was going to do something with. The degree was simply a hurdle I overcame. I wanted to be a journalist since I was, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I skipped class when I was in elementary and junior high school to go home and watch the Watergate hearings. I marched in anti-war protests in my hometown of Boulder, which is a university town. And every night I would watch the evening news with my father. We got newspapers in my house. By the time I was in high school, I made sure we were getting every newspaper that was published in the area. The weekly newspaper, the daily newspaper from Boulder, the two daily newspapers from Denver, and the Wall Street Journal, which was the only national paper you could get. I was just a voracious consumer of news and absolutely convinced I wanted to go into it. When I was 15 years old, I was a I forget what year I was in, sophomore or junior in high school. And I covered the congressional race in my hometown, second congressional district of Colorado, Tim Wirth versus Ed Scott, 1976. And to this day, I stay in touch with Tim Wirth, who won that race and went on to become a senator and undersecretary of state. But I still remember going to those press conferences and town halls with him and writing about the issues of the day, which were immediately post-Watergate. So I've always wanted to do journalism, and university was simply a stop on the way. So I felt like I had to go, and probably if I have one regret about my time in university, it's I rushed through it. And what I should have done is realized that it was an extraordinary opportunity to just immerse myself in a wide range of interests. So usually I ask this next question as my last question, but just to pick up on what you said there, is there anything else that if you could go back to Columbia and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Do the reading. I was so good at faking it. I would write all my papers in the first few weeks of the semester. I would look at the syllabus and then I would figure out what papers were due, what weeks. I would write all the papers without actually having done the reading, figuring if I turn something in, I pass. And then I'd go spend the rest of the semester doing journalism. So you would actually read the books and the articles that were assigned to you so that maybe you would be adding to your base of knowledge? No, I actually didn't read them very closely. I would scan them. I would figure out what I needed to know. I was the master of the minimum necessary work for success. But I'm saying if you were to go back, 
you oh, would actually yes. do it. You would actually, oh, yeah. yeah. So probably some, this guy Homer probably wrote something interesting. I did actually read Homer. Okay. So let me ask you what is in effect the last question then of this interview, Marcus. It's a question I try to ask all of my guests. If you would, if you could please share a story with our young listeners about a low time for you in your professional life when you had to dig deep to keep going. We have all had them. Many of us have had multiple opportunities to feel like crap and to be in the dumps and have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And most importantly, Marcus, as part of this story, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. So I have so many examples of times when I felt like I was defeated and I had to persevere that it's hard to almost focus on one. But I'll give you an interesting story. I was fortunate when I was pretty young, when I just turned 23, when I got sent to Asia for the first time, I was sent to Hong Kong to cover Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, and the Philippines. And I would say I was not necessarily, not at all knowledgeable about those places. And not only that, I was supposed to be covering business stories in those countries, because I was working for a financial news service that was part of Dow Jones, which owned the Wall Street Journal. And I was doing my best. Every day, I'd sit in this office at the Associated Press, which is where I worked out of, and the Telex, which was an old machine that would print out press releases coming in from various PR firms around town, would rattle to life in the afternoon, and these press releases would start automatically printing out of these of the Telex machine. And I would write stories based on the press releases coming in from the companies after making a call or two always to make sure that the press release was right and I understood it. One time, the most powerful and important company in Hong Kong reported its earnings. And it was right at the time that China and the United Kingdom were deciding to return Hong Kong from Britain, where it had been a colony, to China, which now, of course, has sovereignty over Hong Kong. And the most powerful company in town was a company called Jardine Matheson, a big British company. And their earnings came across, and I took the press release, and I sat down, I made a couple of phone calls, and I wrote an article, and I put it out, and I reported that they'd made a $100 million profit, $100 million Hong Kong dollar profit. And next morning, I woke up, went to my door, my apartment, opened the door, there was a copy of the South China Morning Post, the local newspaper, and they had a story stripped across the front page, Jardine's reports record loss. And I just felt this chill across my body because I realized I'd gotten it completely wrong. That as I read the story, I realized I was reporting one number which was not, in fact, their financial result. It was an intermediate number. And I had misunderstood what it was. And I went downstairs to my, the lobby of my apartment building where they got the Asian Wall Street Journal, which often published my stories, looking to see if the Asian Wall Street Journal picked up my story with erroneous information in it. And to my relief, I saw that they actually had one of their own writers write the story. So then I had to screw up my courage and call my editor back in New York, the guy who was my mentor, who decided to take a chance on sending a young reporter to Asia. I had to call up and say, hey, you know that story I wrote yesterday about the most important company in Hong Kong? I got all the facts wrong, or I got the salient fact wrong. And I called him up, and I told him that. And with total equanimity, no wavering in his voice, he just said, write a correction and send it in to me. And I did, and we corrected the story. And that was the last I heard of it except for I carried that around with me. And I went back, I started talking to every company analyst in Hong Kong about how to read company results. 
And I used it as a learning opportunity to try to understand what did I got wrong. And I realized I was just assuming I knew something and I'd read it wrong. The only way I was going to not make that mistake in the future is if I got really smart. So I just self-educated. I went to the phones and took people out to lunch and spent the next month learning everything I could about how companies report the results so I would never make that mistake again. What I find so interesting about that story is that it happened well over 30 years ago, and you can remember it down to the nitty gritty. And I am guessing, Marcus, that you beat yourself up a heck of a lot more than your editor ever did, even though he didn't say anything to you, that you carried that with you. And in fact, it clearly made you a better reporter as a result. I think so. I hope so. And I think that the lesson, at least, that I'm hearing from your story is if you want to be a kick-ass reporter, there's a heck of a lot of self-education that you need to do. Your supervisors are not going to be spoon-feeding this to you. They are not going to be telling you about how to do your homework. Just do it. Do it. That's correct. That's exactly the right advice. Marcus, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I wish you continued success with North Base Media and all of the young, incredible journalists who are trying to get their platforms launched in emerging markets around the world. This has been such an interesting conversation. Andrea, thanks so much for your time and and good luck to all of your listeners. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.